ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are, welcome to the Tuesday, 5th of December, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, where we connect you to the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. And as always, it is my pleasure to welcome you. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, our journey will take us to West Knoll in Belhaven Park. Commodore E.C. Benedict died on November 26, 1920. You'll hear about this famous Greenwich citizen, yachtsman, and successful businessman. On Greenwich life as it is and was in 1919, Erwin Edwards wrote about Greenwich's oldest village. Wrongdoings and misdeeds are all the rage on crimes and misdemeanors. My friends, you have come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most extraordinary communities. We'll have all this and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. A landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future, Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. From backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliate's clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. To learn more and to contact Alexander Affiliates, you can call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 068 my friends, don't gamble with your health. Eastern Neurological Services offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Its principal, Dr. Xiaoke Gao, MD, is a top New York neurologist who practices in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurologic Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders. You'd be glad to know that Eastern Neurological Services provides general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Visit easternneurologic.com, that's easternneurologic.com, or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6500. It's a fact of life that our health is important. Contact Eastern Neurologic today. 
You'll be glad you did. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Greenwich, Connecticut's Gilded Age era was a remarkable time when wealthy Americans constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and designed landscapes. On today's show, our journey will take us to West Knoll in Belhaven. Its principal owner was W.H. Brigham. It was built in 1887. The address is 79 Harbor Drive. The architect was the renowned firm of McKim, Mead, and White. Now, the, sh- the house was demolished in 1906, but a replacement house was constructed the same year, 1906, of course. The architect of that house is not known. And the story goes as follows. McKim, Mead, and White was considered the greatest architecture firm of the Gilded Age. Among the firm's many masterworks were the old Madison Square Garden and the old Penn Station, two of New York's greatest glories, both tragically demolished. Extant masterpieces include the Morgan Library, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Washington Square Arch, the Boston Public Library, and the shingle-style Newport Casino. The firm's two great designers were Charles Folan McKim, who lived from 1847 to 1909, and Stanford White, who lived from 1853 to 1906, both social butterflies, while the reserved William Rutherford Mead, who lived from 1846 to 1928, was the self-described rudder of the office. McKim, Mead, and White did more than any other firm to develop the American shingle style. McKim and White were on the were in on the invention of it. Both worked for Henry Hobson Richardson in the 1870s, when Richardson designed the prototypical shingle style house for William Watts Sherman in Newport. When McKim, Mead, and White joined forces in 1879, they immediately set to work on the Newport Casino, perhaps the most famous example of the style and the building that is responsible for the shingle style's current revival. In 1885, Stanford White built the 44-room Numkeg in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, for the lawyer and diplomat Joseph Choate. Namkeag remains among the most admired residential projects designed by the firm, a house to which young architects still make frequent pilgrimages. Two years later, the firm built its only recorded house from the ground up in Greenwich at Belhaven Park, a classic shingle-style cottage located on a two-acre parcel at 79 Harbor Drive that perched overlooking Long Island Sound. It was done for the businessman named William H. Brigham, about whom little is known beyond his status as a pillar of Brooklyn Heights society. Brigham's West Knoll, on a spectacular-sided hillock facing westward, floating over Byram Harbor, was one of McKim, Meat, and White's 
more modest shingle-style residences. Elegant in its simplicity, the clapboarded first story ran up against the shingled second story with diamond pattern worked in, the recessed balconies with classical pillars, the oval keystone windows on the side gables, and the side overhangs breaking up the wall planes. These details were woven from many styles into a seamless and apparently casual composition. According to the Scientific American Builders Edition of 1890, the house was painted light yellow with white, tr or white trim and green stained blinds. No pictures of the interior survive. One entered the house from the piazza, smaller than many piazzas of the day, but culminating in a lovely gazebo, into a spacious great hall. To the left were the dining room in front and kitchen in the rear, and to the right were the parlor and billiard room. In the Victorian age, the billiard room was a kind of male retreat, the original man cave, where smoking, drinking, and bawdier telling went on together with actual billiard playing. Upstairs were five large bedrooms, the master bedroom giving on to a wide balcony overlooking Byram Harbor. All told, West Knoll cost Brigham, Brigman about $11,000 to design and build. It is impossible to say whether McKim or White designed West Knoll, its understatedness suggests McKim, or whether one of the many talented architects in their employment did the work. Unfortunately, the house lasted only about two decades. The new owner demolished West Knoll in 1906 and built a handsome Georgian Revival Mansion, architect unknown, in its place. Today, the 1906 house exists with the accumulation of a dozen owners' extensive additions and renovations over the last 100 years. The original portraiture was removed at one point, and the entrance relocated from the eastern side of the house to a symmetrically centered door covered by a new entry porch on the front elevation. The one design element carried over into the Georgian replacement was the gazebo, which today has a second deck that serves as a sun porch off the second floor master bedroom. The old West Knoll carriage house still stands, the only structure in Greenwich designed originally by McKim, Mead, and White. Until fairly recently, a McKim, Mead, and White house quite similar to West Knoll stood on the bluffs at Montauk. Tick Hall, as it's known, burned down in 1997, but was meticulously reconstructed by its owners, Dick Caffett, and the late Carrie Nye. Well, my friends, today's journey back in time to West Knoll and Belhaven was made possible by Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut, by Matt Bernard. Belhaven was one of the finest and most spectacular Gilded Age residence parks in America. Just like that, the holidays are upon us. Books make great gifts. With a cornucopia of titles to choose from, it can be hard to select the right one. Well, my friends, worry no more. 
I recommend Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matthew Bernard. Experience the wonders of the flowering of Belhaven, a bastion of Gilded Age Victorian luxury from 1884 to 1929. Beguiling estate biographies and rich illustrations tell the stories of exquisite estates, renowned architects, and more. Visit GreenwichHistory.org for the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store. Call 203-869-6899. But better still, visit the Museum Store at 47 Strickland Road in Cascob. Treat yourself to unhassled free parking, as well as complimentary gift wrapping and coffee or tea in the warm ambiance of the Artist's Cafe in the Toby's Tavern building. Be sure to mention this podcast and tell them your host, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, sent you. The best kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted best coffee shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church, you'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1850. Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own. A popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. Speaking of coffee for good, your next hire is just a coffee away. Well, how about that? Now, did you know that Coffee for Good is an on-the-job training platform with Ableis for people with special needs? Well, it's true. Its graduates emerge with the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail sectors. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue in the historic Solomon Mead House, circa 1858, on the campus of the Second Congregational Church in Greenwich. I encourage you to come to Coffee for Good and to see them in action. Contact employer at coffeeforgood.org, and you can learn more about the learning program for those with special needs by going online to coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. By far one of the most iconic citizens of the town of Greenwich in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, 
was one well-known to us uh, who have called this place home for generations, and that would be Commodore E.C. Benedict. I wanted to read to you, and this comes from the Greenwich News and Graphic, um, his, the announcement of his passing, uh, and it was published in the News and Graphic on Friday, November 26, 1920. You'll learn a lot about Commodore Elias Cornelius Benedict and um, on his place in our history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Most famous citizen, financier, and yachtsman had active careers, says the, the subheadline. In the death of Commodore Elias Cornelius Benedict, for more than half a century engaged in the brokerage business in New York and a prominent figure in the yachting world, which occurred at his mansion, Indian Harbor. On Tuesday evening, shortly before nine o'clock, the town has lost one of its most famous citizens. Heart failure, followed by an illness that began September 1919, was the cause of his death. Since, it was for, since he was first stricken, he had been under the almost constant care of a physician, and although at times his condition seemed to improve, he suffered a number of relapses. Hoping that a change of climate might be of benefit to him, he went south aboard his yacht Oneida the winter of 1919 and remained at Miami, Florida until last April when he returned to Greenwich. Commodore Benedict was born in Somers, Westchester County, near the Croton River on January 24, 1834, thus being in the 87th year of his age at the time of his death. His father, Reverend Henry Benedict, was a Presbyterian clergyman. His early education was received at Westport, Connecticut in Buffalo, New York. At the age of 15, he moved with his family to New York City, and in the same year, 1849, he entered the service of Corning and Company, New York Bankers. For eight years, he served as clerk, but at the age of 23, he struck out for himself. Success soon crowned his efforts, and later he became a member of the New York Stock Exchange, then known as the Gold Board. This was in, on June 6, 1863. He organized the Gold Exchange Bank, which grew out of gold speculation in the 1860s and 1870s. With other associates, he acquired many valuable franchises in various growing cities, of the country and was best known as a handler of gas stocks. When the Chicago Gas Company became a bone of contention between stock operators, Mr. Benedict's firm, E.C. Benedict & Company, which was formed in 1863, arrayed itself against the Standard Oil Company and boomed the stock for all it was worth. Commodore Benedict's life is best explained by the statement he made on his 79th birthday. Quote, For 64 years, he said, quote, I was in Wall Street, the center of our financial storms in this country, and the reflex of all the financial storms abroad. And how I was able to stand it, I do not know, unless it was through the inherited strength I possess. And speaking of Wall Street, I would like to say that I never invited anyone to go into it, and I have invited many to stay away from it, unquote. 
Commodore Benedict used to delight to relate his early experiences as a commuter. He was obliged to leave Greenwich on a train, leaving about six o'clock in the morning. In the winter, when the weather was severely cold, the locomotive, which was of the old wood-burning type, would have used up its entire supply of coal by the time it reached Mount Vernon. And the passengers would disembark and, and assist the train's crew in loading the tender, quote-unquote, with enough wood to carry the train through to the city. He was a close friend of many distinguished people, including the late President Grover Cleveland, who frequently visited his home here and went on numerous fishing expeditions with him. It was aboard the Commodore's yacht Oneida that the President underwent the operation on his ulcerated jawbone. Although a staunch Democrat, he never took an active part in politics. But in 1888, and again a few years later, he was mentioned prominently for governor of Connecticut and emphatically declined the nomination. His chief hobby was yachting and fishing. Aboard his yachts, he had traveled practically all over the world, visiting South America, the West Indies, and in the fall of 1904, aboard his steam yacht, Virginia, Accompanied by a party of friends, he steamed up the Amazon River for 1,200 miles, which was farther than any other yacht had gone. There he inspected the rubber industry. His journeys totaled over, looks like, 80,000 miles. Or, uh, yes, yes, 80,000 miles. While on a jaunt to South America in 1911, his yacht Virginia ran on a... Let's see, a just, a just Jatayas Key, 90 miles west of Havana. For nine days, he and his, and his crew remained on board the vessel. I'm ahead at Cribbage, and the fishing is done, he radioed to his friends. In the autumn of the same year, he chartered the yacht Alvina and started to go on a fourth trip up the Amazon to look after his rubber interests. In 1913, Commodore Benedict purchased the John J.'s Hammond, the yacht Arteus, which he renamed Oneida after his earlier vessel. To elaborate his 80th year, or to celebrate his 80th year, he went again up the Amazon. The next year, he set sail again, this time for Bermuda. On a cruise in West Indian and South American waters in January 1915, Commodore Benedict had the opportunity of saving the lives of 11 persons and crews of a members of a crew on a demasted sloop, Southern Cross, which was towed back to Montserrat. In 1917, the Commodore presented and endowed the Greenwich Hospital in memory of his late wife. The building cost upward of $600,000. In this same year, he retired from membership in the firm of E.C. Benedict & Company. The firm was continued by Marta J. Quinn of Greenwich and E.K. Robinson. Though that should be Martin J. Quinn, I stand corrected. At one time, the Commodore was a member of six yacht clubs. He was formerly Commodore of the Siwanaka Yacht Club, a member of the Indian Harbor Yacht Club, the New York Yacht Club, the Lambs Club, Corinthian and Larchmont Yacht Clubs. 
He was much interested in the Mendelssohn Glee Club of New York, and for several years past, his steam yacht Oneida had brought the members of the club to his mansion here, where concerts were given by the club for the enjoyment of the Commodore's friends, whom he invited in large numbers. He was a member of the New York Stock Exchange in 1863 and did not go from uh, his brokerage firm until November 1917, at which time he had survived to uh, at the age of 83 years. The Commodore was a self-made man, and by his own painstaking efforts, he seemed to, to the height of his ambition, making millions in Wall Street and various business enterprises. The fact that he loved the water was, was shown during his illness when his bed was wheeled from his bedroom to an enclosed porch, over which there was a canopy to keep out the glare of the sun, and there he would watch the vessels and smaller craft on the sound that bears uh, for hours at the time. His wonderful memory proved to be of great benefit to many men in the financial and business world, and his counsel was frequently sought. Commodore Benedict is survived by three daughters, Mrs. Ramsey Turnbull of Bernardsville, New Jersey, Mrs. Thomas Hastings of Westbury, Long Island, and Mrs. Clifford B. Harmon of Indian Harbor, Greenwich. The funeral took place at the Commodore's late mansion yesterday morning at 11.30 o'clock and was largely attended by former business associates and friends of the deceased, many of whom arrived here from New York on the train leaving Grand Central Terminal at 10.06. The casket which was at the far corner of the spacious drawing room, was covered with a blanket of roses, being completely hidden from view by the numerous floral tributes from relatives and friends which were banked in front. Reverend Dr. Frank A. Hosmer, pastor of the First Presbyterian Church here, conducted the service, offering the opening and closing prayers, reading the scripture and pronouncing the benediction. The service was made the more impressive by several selections rendered by 30 members of the Mendelssohn Glee Club of New York, who in the hall adjoining the drawing room sang, quote, Just as I am without one plea, unquote, Sunset and Evening Star, and Would That Life Be Endless Sailing, unquote. Interment took place at the convenience of the family immediately following the ceremony in the Benedict plot in Putnam Cemetery, where the Commodore's wife is buried. Six of the 40 employees of the state, who had been the longest period with the Commodore, acted as pallbearers. They were James McGonagall, 37 years in the Commodore's service, John Sweeney, 36 years with the Commodore, Horace Bassett, Robert Allen, William Wakin, and Maurice Sullivan. Another domestic, Mary MacDonald, had been in the Benedict household for upwards of 40 years. Among the prominent persons who attended the funeral, most of whom were from New York, were E.L. Corning and, and son, Ephraim Corning, the Honorable Herbert Satterley, Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Navy under the late President Theodore Roosevelt's administration, R.A.C. Smith, former Dock Commissioner of New York, J.H. Whitehouse, the oldest member of the New York Stock Exchange, 
Mr. and Mrs. Harrison D. Kerr, Martin J. Quinn, former partner with the Commodore in the E.C. Benedict and Company, Arthur Turnbull, Ramsey Turnbull, William Turnbull, George Post, Clifford B. Harmon, son-in-law of the, of the Commodore, Colonel Howard C. Smith, former Commodore of the Siwanhaka Yacht Club, Frank Bung Jones of the Indian Harbor Yacht Club, John Beresford of the New York Yacht Club, Harry Rowe Shelley of the Players Club, of which the deceased was a member, Lucius H. Beers of the New York law firm of Lord Day and Lord, Frank S. Hastings, and Richard Cleveland, son of the late President Clover, Clover Cleveland. The last will and testament of the late Commodore was read at his late home yesterday afternoon, the contents which will not be disclosed until it is filed in the Greenwich Probate Court. Martin J. Quinn and Frank S. Hastings are named as executors. You're listening to the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead, that's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. In a class by itself, the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store in Artists' Café is the discerning shopper's destination for unique gifts and accessories. Located in the Toby's Tavern building at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, the museum store reflects the richness of Greenwich, Connecticut's renowned history. Browse the latest arrivals in the store and online. Enjoy online shopping and pickup, ample free parking, member discounts, and complimentary gift wrapping. Open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and weekends, noon to 4 p.m. Located at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, enjoy complimentary coffee and tea in the warm ambiance of the Artist's Cafe. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Greenwich Life as it is and was. This was a column that appeared in the Greenwich News and Graphic in the early years of the 20th century. Today's column was written by Erwin Edwards. It's titled Old Town, Sound Beach, the Oldest Village in the Town. And it goes as follows. No one would imagine, unless he knew, that Sound Beach was the oldest village in the town of Greenwich. And by the way, this was published, I forgot to mention this, on October 31st, 1919. Let's start this again, shall we? (laughs) Thank you so much for indulging me. No one would imagine, unless he knew that Sound Beach was the oldest village in the town of Greenwich. A stranger wouldn't believe it because he sees nothing at all that would contribute to that impression, but quite to the contrary, an appearance of modernness on every hand. 
He would point to the many pretty and neat cottages, conspicuous on all the streets that show no trace of age, to the handsome churches that give no suggestion whatsoever of colonial days, to the imposing late-day schoolhouse, to the well-laid-out streets and the many other strong evidences of modern life that offer suggestion of early days. And so, when told that Sound Beach is a very old colonial settlement, that its history dates back 279 years, the stranger looks at you incredulously and asks in a doubting way, quote, Is that true? There is nothing that I can see that would give one that idea. Unquote. And when one told that there are some 13 villages within the limits of the town, none of them very young except the borough of Greenwich, which has grown up to its present size and importance within the past 50 years, the stranger expresses astonishment at it all. The history of Sound Beach is the history of many an old New England town. Sound Beach was the birthplace of Greenwich, and here the first settlement of the town was effected. It was in 1640 that Captain Daniel Patrick and Robert Feeks, agents of the New England colony, landed at what is now known as Greenwich Point, but called by the Indians Monacoego, pronounced Monacoego. <laughs> they have it spelled out. Sound Beach, during its long years of existence, has had, at different periods, four names. To distinguish it from other hamlets that sprang up later, the locality was called Old Town, which signified here was the oldest settlement in the town. As Greenwich became more and more settled, Old Town was changed to Old Greenwich. Sometimes it is alluded to by that name now by the old residences of the town, residents, I should say, of the town. Occasionally, it is spoken of as Greenwich Point, particularly by oystermen and fishermen. Within the memory of many now living, the name Sound Beach came into use, and that is now the official title of this locality of the town. And here are the four names, Old Town, Old Greenwich, Greenwich Point, and Sound Beach. You hear some people who recognize the value and significance of old names say, quote, What a mistake was made when Old Town was changed to Sound Beach. Old Town is such an appropriate name in view of its history. It is fitting to the locality where the first settlement of the town was made. Then, too, the name Old Town gives a suggestion to the stranger that here is a village with a history that goes back to long before the Revolutionary War and to the days of the Indians. Some can remember when, a few years ago, an effort was made to change Cascade to Bayport. The movement succeeded insofar as the post office was concerned, but when the railroad company declined to take the name Cascade down from over the depot and substitute Bayport, that settled it. Cascade remained and always will. However, there is neither here nor there in so far as this brief sketch of Sound Beach is concerned. There are three points of land that jut out into the Sound for a short distance along the shorefront of the town. One is Greenwich Point off Old Town, Sound Beach, near the eastern limit of the town's shorefront. Another is a bit of land that pushes out into the Sound, about in the middle of that shorefront. It is known as Meads Point. The Indian Field Road leads to it from the Boston Post Road. The third projection of land into the Sound off of Greenwich is called Field Point. 
It is just east of Belhaven and but a short distance from the mouth of the Byram River. It is connected with the Boston Post Road by the Field Point Road. These three points have all a history closely connected. With the history of the town, briefly described, it was on Greenwich Point that the first settlers of Greenwich landed. Meads Point was where the Indians beached their canoes and brought ashore their oysters and clams. Indian Point was close by, and here were pitched the wigwams of quite a tribe of Indians. The big mounds of oyster and clam shells found here would seem to indicate that they were very fond of shellfish. Field Point was where the horses and cattle were sometimes driven when danger threatened. There was a large field close by it, of such shape as to provide readily for their protection. In the War of 1812, companies of soldiers were posted on these three points to guard against possible attacks of the town by the landing of the English. For in 1813, a British fleet appeared off the eastern end of the Sound, and for nearly a year had complete control of the waters. The town, a few years after the settlement of Old Town, Sound Beach, was really divided into two sections. That portion of Greenwich lying east of the Mianus River was called Old Greenwich. That section between the Mianus and the Byram Rivers, known as Horseneck. These names continued to be used until a few years ago, but as the town grew, Riverside and Sound Beach were substituted for Old Greenwich. On the east side of the Mianus River, a Mianus, Koskob, and Greenwich for Horseneck on the west side of that river. However, these two divisions of the town are often alluded to, to now by old residents as Old Greenwich and Horseneck. Next week in our next article, which will be a continuation of this brief sketch of Old Town Sound Beach, we shall try to tell something about its growth in recent years. And indeed, friends, we will continue this on the next show, uh, which will be broadcast for your listening pleasure on December 12th, 2023. My friends, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. We're just about out of time on today's show, but by golly, we're going to have at least a couple of short crime stories for you. By the way, in 1906, the Greenwich Police Department was founded. We salute you and thank you for your service. Both of these crime stories come from December 1911. The first one is titled, Watchman Drank and Had Pistol. When Officer Tobin heard a pistol shot in the direction of the freight yard around 3 o'clock Sunday morning, he went down Arch Street to investigate and met Antonio Perotti coming toward him. Perotti was under the influence of liquor, and Officer Tobin stopped him and asked him if he had a revolver. One was produced with one chamber emptied, so the officer concluded that a loaded revolver and an intoxicated man at three in the morning was a bad combination and locked Perotti up. I would have probably done the same thing. Anyway, on with the story. He was brought into the borough court before Judge Hubbard, that would be Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard, we know him very well on this show, Monday, charged with intoxication, a charge of carrying concealed weapons not being preferred because it was found that the man had taken out a license from the selectman to carry a revolver on the ground that he was employed as night watchman on the Meany building, now being erected on Greenwich Avenue. He did not, however, have the permit with him, as he claimed he had lost it. 
Officer Tobin told the court that while Perotti was a little intoxicated, he would not have locked him up if it had not been that he had a revolver with him and he believed he had been shooting it. Judge Hubbard discharged the prisoner. The next story is titled, quote-unquote, Nothing in it, said Keenan. And it goes as follows. John Keenan, who claims to have been employed by the Lake Torpedo Boat Company in Bridgeport, was in town Saturday night in a jolly, intoxicated mood, and judging by his actions, he quote-unquote owned the town. Walking into Finch's Pharmacy shortly before 11 o'clock, he demanded in a saucy manner that Mr. Finch give him some money to get out of town with. Just before that, he had been giving utterance in front of the store to some noises resembling a song. I wonder what that sounded like. Anyway, Mr. Finch informed police headquarters of Keenan's actions, and Officer Tobin caught him near the depot, jumping on and off of trolleys and likely to become injured. He locked him up over Sunday and Monday. Judge Hubbard fined him $5 in costs and suspended execution of the sentence. Keenan said he had been drinking a great deal and now saw that, quote, there was nothing in it, unquote, and he would, quote, unquote, cut it out if given a chance and sign a pledge. The judge gave him the chance. And that, my friends, is the latest installment in Crimes and Misdemeanors in the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. As always, I want to thank you for listening to the Tuesday, 5th of December, 2023 episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Contact me at GreenwichTownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. You can learn more about Greenwich, Connecticut's history and listen to past shows by going to GreenwichTownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. Look for the show on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Our next show is scheduled for Tuesday, the 12th of December, 2023. That's next Tuesday. I'm looking forward to being with you. Take good care. See you then. Bye-bye.